0: Our scripture text today is 1 Timothy, chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 25. And I was working on the message this week. I found out or discovered, which shouldn't have been really a surprise to me, but, you know, you're often just surprised by blinding flashes of the obvious— uh, that uh, just how practical this passage is. Uh, and uh, I, I have experienced several of the things that are mentioned in this passage, perhaps not personally, but I've observed them. And so uh, this, is a, this is a passage that is uh, dealing with kind of the nuts and bolts work of the government of the church. And I'd say, ah, oh, but, you know, I love those great sermons about Jesus and about grace and about, about God and everything. And, and here's this passage that basically is very down to earth and very practical, but it is an application of very powerful truth. And that, that powerful truth, as we read this passage, keep this in mind, that powerful truth is this. Jesus Christ is the head of his church, and the church honors Christ when the church lives and works in Christ's way. We must do God's work in God's way. So with that thought in mind, let's read this passage. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. And here we end the reading of God's word. I have always thought it was interesting that right in the middle of this passage, Paul puts this little reference to Timothy about drinking a little wine. He doesn't say drink a lot of wine. He says a little wine. Don't, don't get carried away here. But apparently Timothy had some, well, as some, someone once said, he had a tender tummy And uh, the relaxing and calming effect of wine, uh, particularly as an aid in digestion, was something that Paul uh, mentions to him. That's about all I'm going to say about that parenthesis there, okay? And The passage we just read is really a continuation from last week, where Paul began to teach Timothy of how he should relate to different people in the church. He talks about older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and then he talks about uh, widows, and of course, as we read last week, it's fairly extensive, his instruction to Timothy about how the widows of the church, in the church, should be, uh, should be uh, helped, and he makes two distinctions, a uh, distinction between younger widows and widows who are true, truly widows, and those Those true widows are those who have no family support, no one to help them, and the church is to help them. But the the church is also to instruct and teach younger widows how they should live uh, as well. Today we continue, how is Timothy to relate to elders in the church now, remember, I said Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and as head of the church, he is head of the church's government. When we talk about elders, we're talking about men who were called overseers. Yes, they may be older, and that is reflected in the, the Greek word for elder, presbyteros. Uh, you know, when you're older and your eyes start getting a little weak, they sometimes call that presbyopia. It's, it's old guy proplos, right? It's old guy. But the word, same word is used uh, for, for an office, for the office of elder, and interchangeable with that is the, uh, is, is the title overseer as well. Today in the passage we just read, you see that the office of elder is, is divided into two groups, those who rule and those who labor in the word and teaching, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But I want you to remember that that Christ rules his church. It is his body, it is his church, he and he alone is the head of the church. He rules the church by his word and spirit, but he uses human people, I don't know of any other kind, human people who, uh, as the officers in the church, to administer the teachings and the the precepts of the word. So you have Christ, the word, the elder, the eldership. And Christ rules the the church through his word, by his word, through the human agency of the officers, the elders of the church. And that's what we're focusing on today. Well, the first thing that Paul says to Timothy is the elders who rule well should be considered worthy of double honor, and then he says, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Who are elders who rule well? We read a lot about Paul's uh instruction to Timothy as to how he should uh how, how his character is to be formed, how he should uh live with and work in the church, and we also had a passage prior to this about the qualifications for the elder, and we can kind of put together a, a composite. What is, who is an elder who rules well? Let me just give you a very quick outline of, uh, and these terms are pretty self-explanatory. An elder who rules well sets an example for the rest of the flock. An elder who rules well has gained wisdom. That's sometimes why we associate eldership with older people. They've Lived. They have learned, sometimes by succeeding, sometimes by failing, but they have learned, they have gained wisdom, and they've spent more time in God's Word. Elders who rule well are fair and impartial, and we've actually had a reference in this passage to being impartial. Elders who rule well are learned in God's Word. Even if they're not actively teaching, even if they're not Those who labor in the Word and Doctrine, they are learned in the Word of God. Elders who rule well love the people of God and are willing to sacrifice on their behalf to serve them. Elders who rule well are zealous, often putting aside their own interests in the interest of serving Christ and serving His Church. Those are, that's a a portrait of an elder who rules well. He's an example. He's wise. He's fair and impartial. He's learned in the word. He loves the people of God and he is zealous for the service of his Savior and for the people of the church. Paul says elders like that should be worthy of honor. They should be honored. Now, he uses the term double honor here, uh, which indicates something on top of something else. I read one commentary. It's written by a former professor of mine, George Knight. I uh, wrote a, a very good commentary on the pastoral epistles. He he said, the elders who rule well should have both honor and an honorarium. Hmm, okay, that's an interesting way of putting it. But then he also says this may refer specifically to the next category of elder, that is the elder who rules... or not only rules well, but is uh, given to uh, the uh, uh, word and to doctrine, who labors specifically in the teaching ministry of the church. But that doesn't mean we can't uh, honor our uh, ruling elders, and we should. Uh, We should remember them in our prayers. We should honor them uh, for their work and labor. And remember, Matt needs help. I told you that several weeks ago. Some of you responded, and, and, and okay, we've only got one ruling elder right now. Um, and it would never be wrong if we expressed gratitude for an elder's work with some kind of honorarium as well. Though most churches don't do that, certainly is, is not something we should uh, skip or, or ignore. But the passage seems to focus on the, honor, the honorarium side of this for those who labor in the word and doctrine. And, and you see that word especially when Paul says worthy of du- double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And uh, again, in, the, in the, the original language, that word that's translated especially can also be translated particularly. Particularly, So focusing on those elders who labor in preaching and teaching. But then Paul backs his argument up with appeals to Scripture. What does the law say? It's very interesting to me that Paul, writing in the New Testament, writing the uh, books of the New Testament, writing after the coming of Christ, and run, writing during the, the growth and, and planting of the, the, sometimes what we call the New Testament church, appeals to the authority of the Old Testament law. And here's what the law says about this. And he quotes two passages from the law. The first is from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. And that says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. He also quotes this passage in 1 Corinthians 9, 9 uh, through 11, uh, when he's defending the right of the apostles or ministers of the word to receive some material benefit from the church for their work. In, in that passage, 1 Corinthians 9, 9-11, through 11, he writes this, "'For it is written in the law of Moses, "'You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. "'Is it for oxen that God is concerned? "'Does he not certainly speak for our sake?' It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? That's the argument that Paul builds for the Corinthians based on this passage of Deuteronomy 25, four: you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. Why wouldn't you muzzle the ox? Because while the ox is... Is, go, is is treading out the grain. The ox is probably going around in circles, treading this grain out. He sometimes lowers his head and takes a mouthful of grain. That's his eating. And the, the Bible says, don't muzzle the ox. Don't prevent him from eating some of the grain that he is, uh, is threshing. And of course, Paul asks that question, is it really oxen that God is concerned about? Well, Yes, but we're supposed to learn from it, too. We're supposed to learn from it, too. Uh, Also, Paul quotes not so much from the law, though it's indirectly based on the law, but he more directly quotes from words of Jesus in Matthew 10.10, where Jesus says the laborer deserves his food. And that may well be based on an Old Testament passage, Leviticus 19.13, which says, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. When your, when your day laborer has finished his work, you pay him and send him home with, with his pay. He's depending on that. Uh, Jesus, perhaps based on Leviticus 19.3, says, for the laborer deserves his food. And those are the quotes that Paul uses to support his view. That those who rule well, particularly those who labor in the word and doctrine, should receive some honorarium, something for their labor. They are dedicating their whole lives to this work and uh, full-time ministry there. Those are the those are the elders who labor in uh in the word and teaching or doctrine, and we distinguish between those elders and ruling elders. Uh the, the group specifically in in view here is worthy of support. Those who labor in word and teaching are like Timothy and Titus, the two uh, men who, to whom Paul writes the pastoral epistles, those whose whole life and time are dedicated to this pursuit. Remember what we read a few weeks ago, 1 Timothy 4, 13 through 16, "'Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching.' Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. In Paul's description of Timothy's ministry, that what he's telling Timothy, this is how you should live, this is how you should act in the church as the, the the elder who labors in the word and teaching. Notice the all-encompassing terminology here. He doesn't say do this on a part-time, do this as if you have a, a spare 15 minutes. Uh, do some of this. Immerse yourself in it. Dedicate yourself to this. Do not neglect your gift. Practice these things. Keep a close watch on yourself. These are these are instructions that imply and tell Timothy, but implication to us that his whole life is oriented toward this ministry of word of the word and teaching. Shifting gears a bit. There's a downside to being an elder. I'm sure if you interviewed elders, you you would hear about the downside, but there's a particular one that Paul focuses on in this passage, and that is the issue of accusations that can be made against officers of the church. I'm dealing with a case right now, a judicial case. Well, the case hasn't actually come, but there's a case here. Uh, that uh, someone is making an accusation against one of our leaders in the church, and the rules that Paul lays out here play particularly in this case it 's happening so I said, I'm, this is very practical, and I can tell you, this is happening right now as as we are here today, this story is unfolding. In a part of our presbytery where accusations have been made, there's a saying that those who lead from the front are often pushed from behind. There's a vulnerability in the office, whether teaching or ruling. And I might also include deacons, too, can can face some, some of this. There's a vulnerability to being falsely accused, whether out of that you've tried to teach someone something and they have rejected that teaching and now they're angry and they seek some sort of vindication or revenge or something, or or perhaps someone has been disciplined in the church and, and they're, they're trying to uh, fight back, push back against it by bringing accusations against an officer of the church. You must remember that the elders are on the front line in the church in the battle against the world, the flesh, and Satan himself. And sometimes the enemy counterattacks. So, Paul has some teaching. And again, he applies the law. He applies the wisdom of God's law from the Old Testament. He says again, he says, what does the law say? Or we say this. Deuteronomy 19.15 says this, "...a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established." This is why Paul says in verse 19 of our passage, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. He's relying directly on this passage from Deuteronomy 19. Biblical wisdom and biblical protection against false accusations. We still apply this uh, today in our, in our book of discipline Uh, where we say right up front, any charge, particularly against an elder, must be supported, must be observed. That offense must be observed by two or three witnesses. This prevents private vengeance, private revenge against someone who has had to, in the course of their work, do something uh, unpopular, perhaps, or or, uh, that has offended someone. But then there's also the uh, case where an elder does something wrong and after being admonished or, uh, or uh, tried, attempts have been made to correct that elder that they persist in sin. This is where Paul says uh, um, in verse 20, as for those who persist in sin, he's just still talking about elders here. Still talking about elders. For those who persistence in rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. There is an assumption in these words that some kind of work has been done prior to this to try to correct the problem. It's implied when Paul says, if they persist in doing wrong, in sinning, if they persist in sin, rebuke them. What would have been done? Well, very often we go back to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 18, where Jesus himself outlines a procedure for dealing with an offense. If your brother offends you, Jesus says first go to him on your own, talk to him if you have if you convince him and he repents, then you have regained your brother. But if he resists and you're certain that there is a a sin that needs to be dealt with there, take two or three witnesses, and again two or three witnesses with you. And if he refuses to listen to the witnesses, bring it to the church. If he refuses to listen to the church, then let him be to you as a sinner, a publican, an outcast. And of course, there is an assumption, I think, uh, on Paul's part here in our passage in First Timothy, that some kind of process like this has happened already. But the elder is continuing in sin. And so we're at that point in the Matthew 18 passage, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Here, Jesus is again quoting from the law. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Two notorious classes of sinners, Gentiles and tax collectors. You feel that in April, don't you? You're very much aware of that in the month of April. It's an orderly way of discipline. It's not private warfare or public warfare. It certainly should never be public warfare, but it is an orderly way. It increases the pressure on an an offending brother or sister, uh, in this case an elder. It increases the pressure. If they resist, they are disciplined, and Paul specifically says here that such an elder who, can, who persists in sin, who persists in that, must re- be rebuked in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Public rebuke in the presence of all. That is a very serious point. It's something we would not do lightly. It tells us that this person is really resisting God's Word, resisting the government of the church, which means, remember, that government from Christ to the Word to the elders. He is resisting Christ. And Paul says, publicly, rebuke that man, Why? So that the rest may stand in fear. This is the public rebuke is to be a deterrent to sin. It reminds us that God does discipline his church. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. The Lord will not hold him guiltless. That idea of tempting God is basically saying, God, I'm going to sin, and I'm going to bet that I get away with it. No, you don't. And it is part of the good government of the church to make sure that doesn't happen. When we see God, through the appointed means, exercising discipline in the church, the rest of us should be reminded that we stand in the presence of the true and living God and he knows what is happening in his church and he will punish the guilty and we should fear. We should be in awe. Sometimes we like to take a little of the sting out of that word fear and just say, well, we should respect. No, you should be afraid. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Paul also tells Timothy in all of these judgments, in all of these proceedings, you must be impartial in your judgments, in those decisions. No partiality. You must be even handed. You must not prejudge a case. You must allow all the evidence both of guilt and of innocence, to come forward and only then make your judgment. You do not make a judgment based on the fact that someone who stands before you is wealthy or your friend. In the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, when we are in a disciplinary session, whether at a session level or a a, uh, presbytery level or even at the General Assembly, as every session begins, it doesn't even matter if you've had a, you know, a, a, a break to get some coffee and donuts, and 15 minutes later you come back, you read a particular charge, and the body that is sitting in judgment is charged over and over and over again, not to prejudge, but to base a decision solely on the facts and on the Word of God. That is how seriously this advice, this, this instruction is to be taken. Paul also talks about ordaining officers, ordaining elders. And he says this, Do not, uh, do not uh, be hasty in the laying on of hands, verse 22, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Do not be hasty in ordaining someone. Oh, he's a great guy. Everybody loves him. He's a great guy. He's he's just you know oozing personality, and 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 people are attracted to him. He's he's one of these uh, he's one of these natural born leaders. I think we should ordain him. Not so fast. By the way, I've more often than not seen the charismatic guys flame out completely, fall flat in their faces. But nevertheless, whether that's true or not, Paul says don't be hasty. If you ordain someone in haste, and it turns out that they come with a lot of baggage and problems and start leading the church astray, you yourself are a participant in their sins. You are the one who, in laying hands on them and ordaining them, gave them the power of the office, which they now abuse to the detriment of the church, and you bear some responsibility for that. Do not lay hands on someone quickly. Keep yourself pure. That follows right along with that. If you are participating in the sins of others by hasty ordination, the opposite is to keep yourself pure. Then there's that break about Drinking a little wine for your stomach and your frequent ailments. And then in verse 24, we pick up a, a further thought in the same same context, though. He says, The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. Now, this is, this is his rationale for saying don't lay hands on someone quickly. Why? You need to observe them for a period of time. You need to see what kind of people they are. See how they react under pressure. See how they, how they handle limited areas of responsibility. See if they are uh, unstable people that are drawn to every wind of doctrine. And, the, and, and, and you'll be able to tell from that if they will be stable or unstable officers in the church, or whether they will be tempted to follow to false teaching or fall into other forms of sin. Observe for a while. Some people's sins are conspicuous, and you know right away. oh, no, we got to deal with this person, but he's not going to be an elder. Others take time. Similarly, some good works are conspicuous. You see diligence. You see love for the people of God. You see uh, someone who who is an example to others, who has grown in wisdom and has learned it in the Word. All of those marks of a uh, an elder who rules well. You see those. Those qualities, perhaps in a in a growing form, in that person, and yes, you'd say that person might indeed be an elder in the church. But even and even sometimes those good works take a time take time to become more evident. But even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Allow time for both evil and good to become evident as you observe a person in their life in the church. Several years ago, a young man came to our presbytery. In the course of his examinations, he, it came out that he held several questionable theological views. But the presbytery decided, hmm, other people hold these views, not that big a thing. and went ahead and ordained him. The moderator of the presbytery at that time had a real problem with this. The moderator called the clerk of session and said, I'm taking this passage from 1 Timothy very seriously. I believe we are making a big mistake. And as moderator, I'm expected to lead the service of ordination. I can't do it. I cannot before God lay hands on this man and ordain him. Well, the presbytery brought someone else in to lead the service, and the man was ordained. A few years later, a scandal erupted in his church due to some of his teachings and some of his wife's teachings as well. He... There were records that showed sermons, uh, preached, articles that were written that in which he very clearly, blatantly said, our Westminster standards are in error and need to be corrected. And it was precisely in those areas that were troublesome during his ordination. Charges were brought against him. He was convicted in presbytery and appealed to General Assembly, and the Assembly turned down his appeal and allowed the presbytery to complete the process by deposing them from the ministry. You know one thing we learned from this? It's a lot easier to pay attention up front and not ordain someone who was showing problems than to go ahead and ordain them and then try to get them out of office later. That was a two-year-plus process. This is exactly what Paul is talking about. This is exactly what Paul is talking about. When the church obeys the instruction that Paul gives here to Timothy, when we apply this even-handedly, wisely in the church, we are honoring Christ, the head of the church. God is a God of order, not of disorder. In our government under Christ, by the words through the ministry of elders, that government is a government established to preserve equity, to preserve justice, to preserve order in the church. And in doing so, we honor the head of the church, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters in God's providence, we welcome, we're, we're about to welcome Pastor Darrell as minister, as a minister in this church. Uh, little, little by little, he's going to be taking on more responsibilities. Sometime in the middle of September, he will be preaching full-time here. For those who are elders or who may become elders, this is your passage, and you need to meditate on this day and night. For the pastor, this is how we relate to those who have been given authority in the church, and this is how we honor Christ, the head of the church. These are solemn instructions. Brothers and sisters, I've been a minister for over 40 years. I have seen what happens in churches when these instructions are ignored, and I've seen what happens when they are obeyed. Trust me, you need to follow the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, mold our hearts, and our minds, our will, so that we would obediently follow your word. Let us recognize the wisdom of your word. Let us recognize the rightness of your word. And let us submit and subdue our wills to your will. For the honoring of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, for the honoring of the true and living God,